Amen. Thank you, choir. If you have your copy of God's Word, I want to ask you to turn with me to Hosea chapter 8. Hosea chapter 8. You know, you, you come to find the more you study the Scripture, how easy it is for us to wander away from God and become far from Him without even realizing that it had happened. You see things in the Scripture, like in the Sermon on the Mount, where in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many signs and wonders in your name? And then in Matthew 7, verse 23, he says, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. You see, the reality is that Jesus knows the difference between our professions and the authenticity of our hearts. God is not mocked. He is never fooled. He knows the absolute truth about every single one of us. Another thing that we need to understand is that Satan is in the business of counterfeits. That's what he does. He presents to us counterfeits of what God truly desires of us. For instance, whereas God wants us to know and understand unconditional love, Satan counterfeits that with a passion-filled lust. Though God wants us to be oak trees who experience his incredible joy regardless of the circumstances in life, Satan presents to us just little brittle twigs of happiness through material possessions or through popularity or through reputation. As God desires for us to walk in a living, vibrant relationship with Him, Satan counterfeits with religious activity. And so often we fall to the counterfeit because the counterfeit looks right and it sounds right And sometimes it even feels right while being dead wrong. Hosea is prophesying to a people who had it dead wrong. And today we'll see in the prophecy, whereas God is announcing judgment upon his people because of their sin and rebellion, because they were far away from him, He prophesies that Israel will cry out in that day, Lord, we know you. And God will prove that they don't really know him at all. Normally, I'll ask for you to stand in respect of the reading of the word of God. But today, we're going to look at Hosea chapters 8 and 9, quite a lengthy passage. So I'm not going to ask you to stand. Be perfectly honest. I'm not sure you'd stand all the way through anyway. So, with God's Word in our hand, with the Bibles opened, let's turn together to Hosea chapter 8, and we'll look at it piece by piece, verse by verse, beginning with Hosea 8, verse 1. Set the trumpet to your mouth. He shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. When he says, set the trumpet to your mouth, that's an announcement of judgment. The enemy is coming. 
when he references the eagle, that's probably a reference to Assyria who would come in judgment. An eagle is known as being fast, as being bold. So he says, warn the people. Let them know judgment is coming. Assyria is on the way because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled my law. Verse 2, Israel will cry to me, my God, we know you. But Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. Israel will say, God, we know you. God will say, no, you don't. And here are the evidences of that. Number one, they chose their own leaders. Look at verse 4. It says, they set up kings, but not by me. They made princes, but I did not acknowledge them. This is probably a reference to, as I said to you at the very beginning, there was a period of time in this prophecy where Israel had, 24, had, had six kings over the course of 24 years, four of whom were assassinated. So people were rallying a, uh, behind some of these kings, and people were wanting the, the person they wanted to be over the throne of Israel. God wasn't placing people there. The people were placing people there. He says, you want what you want. You set up your own kings. You don't look for my guidance in that. Number two, they chose their own worship. Second half of verse 4, from their silver and gold they made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. Your calf is rejected, O Samaria. My anger is aroused against them. How long until they attain to innocence? For from Israel is even this, a workman made it and it is not God. But the calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. If you remember when the kingdom of Israel split into two, there was a northern kingdom which kept the name Israel, and that's who most of this prophecy is against, and then the southern kingdom of Judah. After the reign of Solomon, you remember the kingdom was divided in two. Rehoboam was the king uh, of Judah. Jeroboam was the king of Israel in the north. Well, Jeroboam was afraid that the people in the northern kingdom would go down to the southern kingdom to worship God at the uh, altars there. And so He had an altar built in the northern kingdom, and he had two golden calves built. And he said to the people, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. You can just worship here. He set up his own priestly system and did his own thing, and the people began to worship this false god. The calf was a symbol, again, of fertility, and so people were believing that they were calling Uh, upon blessing for their land as they worshiped this golden calf. And so God is saying here, listen, you set up your own kings and you set up your own worship. You say you know me, but the evidence is that you don't know me at all. It goes on in verse 7, they sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. Now let's think about that. Remember in the book of Ecclesiastes where the scripture says, vanity of vanities, All earth is filled with vanity, vanity and chasing after the wind. Vanity and wind, though having somewhat different meanings, they're used interchangeably. And so what he's saying is the things that they are sowing are worthless. It's vanity, it's wind. And they're going to reap the whirlwind. What's going to come from that is a judgment greater than they know. The stalk has no bud. It shall never produce meal. If it should produce, aliens would swallow it up. There's no fruit coming from Israel. Israel is swallowed up. Now they are among the Gentiles like a vessel in which is no pleasure. She's saying Israel is unfruitful. Remember a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the parable of the sower or 
maybe more appropriately entitled the parable of the soils, we made the point that genuine salvation manifests itself in fruitfulness. Where there is no fruit, you got to wonder if there's genuine salvation there. He says, Israel says that they, don't, that they know me, but they don't produce any fruit. And here in the next few verses, he likens Israel to three different objects. And so there in verse 8, when he says, now they're among the Gentiles like a vessel in which is no pleasure, he says, they are no more than discarded pottery. Now think with me about that. God said to Israel, you are a special treasure to me above all the peoples of the earth. But because they had rejected him, they were mixed among the Gentiles like discarded pottery. And then he says in verse 9, they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey alone by itself. So Israel is like, a dis, like discarded pottery and Israel is like a wild donkey. No restraint, just wandering on his own. And Ephraim has hired lovers. She has prostituted herself. Yes, though they have hired among the nations, now I will gather them. And they shall sorrow a little because of the burden of the king of princes. Verse 11, because Ephraim has made many altars for sin, meaning that they have erected these altars that are leading people to sin. They have become for him altars for sinning. So the worship is corrupt. It's making things worse. In verse 12, he says, it's not that they didn't know. I have written for him the great things of my law, but they were considered a strange thing. I told them how to live, but they chose to reject it. Verse 13, the sacrifices of my offerings, they sacrifice flesh and eat it, but the Lord doesn't accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They should return to Egypt. Now he's not speaking specifically here of Egypt. It would be the Assyrians who would come and carry them captive. Now some of them, as they would be scattered in different places, certainly could be scattered in Egypt. But the reference here is, though they had been redeemed from slavery, because they have rejected me, they're going back to it. He says, Judah also has multiplied fortified cities. Or I'm sorry, verse 14, Israel has forgotten his maker and has built temples or palaces is the way that word we translated. Judah also has multiplied fortified cities. I will send fire upon his cities and it shall devour his palaces. So he said they set up their own kings, they set up their own worship, and third of all, they built up their own cities. The northern kingdom has been built palaces. The southern kingdom has built fortified cities, protecting themselves from harm. But it's not going to work. Listen, it's not that it's a sin to build up or to fortify a city. The sin is when in doing that, you feel that you don't need God anymore. And that's what Israel had done. You know, there's a scripture that says, unless, a board, uh, unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. That's also actually talking about family. But whether you're building family or whether you're being used of the Lord to build church or whether you're building a city, if the Lord is not in the building, 
It's worthless. All buildings built on sand will eventually fall. And that's what he's saying. So he says, judgment is coming. Let people know. Because Israel's going to cry out that they know me, but the truth is they don't. And the evidence is they set up their own kings, they set up their own worship, they build their own cities. They say they know me, but they don't act like it. They don't trust in me. They don't come to me. And so they don't know me at all. And now as we come to chapter 9, Hosea does an interesting thing in this prophecy, and that is that he begins to explain the present rebellion from the perspective of past rebellion. And I'll explain that more in a moment. But here's the fourth point that I want you to see before we get to chapter 9. And that is they had been living this way for a long, long time. Wasn't something that just happened yesterday. They've been living this way for a long time. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Do not rejoice, O Israel, with joy like other peoples, for you have played the harlot against your God. You have made love for hire on every threshing floor. The threshing floor and the wine press shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail in her. You are saying that Baal has provided fertility in your land, but Baal has not. He's lifeless idol. God, who is their maker, God, who is their redeemer, God is the one who brought them in the land. God is the one who's provided for them. Verse 3, they're not going to dwell in the Lord's land. By the way, it's the Lord's land. It's not yours. They shall not dwell in the Lord's land. Ephraim shall return to Egypt and shall eat unclean things in Assyria. They shall not offer wine offerings to the Lord, nor shall their sacrifices be pleasing to him. It shall be like the bread of mourners to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their own life. It shall not come into the house of the Lord. Verse 5, what will you do in the appointed day and in the day of the feast of the Lord? For indeed they are gone because of destruction. Egypt shall gather them up. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their valuables of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. What are you going to do on the day of the festivals? You're not going to be able to celebrate because you're going to be enslaved. Verse 7. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel knows the prophet is a fool. The spiritual man is insane because of the greatness of your iniquity and great enmity. The watchman of Ephraim is with my God, but the prophet is a fouler snare in all his ways. Enmity in the house of his God. They are deeply corrupted as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Israel sets up their own kings. Israel sets up their own worship. Israel builds their own cities. Israel's been doing this for a long, long time. God has sent the prophet. God has sent the watchman. And he looks at him as if he's a fool. They pay no attention. God has proclaimed his word. And it's strange to them. They don't know him at all. Look at verse 10. God speaks. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. I want to help you here in verse 10. You know what? I was in seminary until I realized that the word wilderness actually spoke of a desert. Because when I thought, say, wilderness, I'm thinking forest, right? Don't you? 
But wilderness means desert. Now, here's why this is significant. When he says in verse 10, I found Israel like grapes in the desert, do you expect to see grapes in the desert? No. So in other words, what he's saying is, Israel was the apple of my eye. Israel was such a treasure to me. Israel was like the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. Israel was precious to me. But they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves to that shame. They became an abomination like the thing they loved. Let me explain. You remember after God through Moses led the people out of Egypt and their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness or desert, right? Before they get into the promised land, there's a passage in Numbers chapter 25 that says that Israel was coming into Moabite territory. Now, the Moabite king was scared to death of Israel because he had heard of all that God had done for Israel in Egypt and in defeating other enemies. So terrified, he hires a man named Balaam. Balaam was a diviner, kind of a magician, and he hires this man Balaam to come and to pronounce curses on Israel. And he tries to do it, but God won't let him do it. But then finally, Balaam says to the people, listen, you want to trip up Israel, here's what you do. Get them to have relations with your women, and they'll follow after your And so in Numbers chapter 25, at Baal of Peor, the men of Israel have relations with the Moabite women and begin to worship Baal. This is nothing new, is it? They've been doing this for a long, long time. So he says in verse 11, As for Ephraim, their glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no, ch- no conception. Though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them to the last man. Yes, woe to them when I depart from them. Just as I saw Ephraim like Tyre planted in a pleasant place. They were both places that had uh, uh, people that had fertile land. So Ephraim will bring out his children to the murderers. In verse 14, we have Hosea who is praying what is likened to an imprecatory psalm. He says, give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. He's saying, take away their blessings that you promised them. Verse 15, God says, all their wickedness is in Gilgal, for there I hated them. Because of the evil of their deeds, I will drive them from my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebellious. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Yes, were they to bear children, I would kill the darlings of their womb. Hosea says, my God will cast them away because they did not obey him. And they shall be wanderers among the nations. Now, I want to help you with something. If you go back and you look at verse 15 and you say, where God says, for there I hated them, that bothers us really badly, doesn't it? The idea of God hating. What does it mean? Well, I want to comfort you for a moment in helping you to understand that the word doesn't mean the same as the way that we use it, okay? But the word hated there would be similar to the words in verse 17, cast away. 
In other words, God rejects a people who have rejected Him. But now think with me for a moment, okay? I told you that here in chapter 9, God through the prophet was going to explain the present rebellion of Israel by the perspective of their past rebellions. Now let's talk about why that's significant, okay? First of all, it's significant because as I told you in the last point, it reminds us that this is not new. It's been going on a long, long, long time. So no one can ever say that God is being unfair. People say that sometimes today, you know? Even Christians sometimes errantly say that. Sometimes it's hard for us to believe that God can be a God of wrath as well as a God of love. And sometimes as we think about the judgment of God, we just think that that is grossly unfair. But a person who thinks that God is unfair is just showing that that's a person who has never read the Word of God. God has been putting up with this for a long, long time. What's happening in Hosea's day is the same thing that was happening in Moses' day. In Numbers chapter 25. And Israel has never really changed. The second reason why this is important is because it shows us that they have reached a culmination of sin. That now their sin is reached to the point of boiling over and God is going to act. Yes, God is a God of love. But yes, God is also a God of wrath. God is just and being just, he must punish sin. And just because God hasn't punished sin in your life today does not mean that he won't tomorrow. You nor I are promised another breath, much less another day. And God is just and we must remember that and so what we see here is a culmination of the sin of Israel that now is boiling over and God is saying the eagle is coming but the third thing that this shows us by explaining the present rebellion of Israel from the perspective of their past rebellion my word it shows us the grace of Oh, we think of that passage that Peter writes. Lord, it's not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but his long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. God had delayed judgment because God is gracious and God wanted Israel to return This judgment would come. Israel would say, God, what's the deal? We know you. Why are you letting this happen to us? And God is saying, no, you don't. You set up your own kings. You set up your own worship. You build up your own cities. And you've been doing it for a long, 
long time. At the very beginning, listen, I told you, Satan is in the, benef- in the business of counterfeits, right? Takes God's love, counterfeits it with passion-filled lust. He takes God's desire for us to know joy despite whatever circumstances come our way, and he counterfeits it with temporary happiness that comes from the temporary pleasures of the world. He takes relationship with God to be able to walk with him and worship him, and he counterfeits it with religion, with activities. But you know what it all boils down to, this great counterfeit? He takes the wonder and amazement and incredible life-giving joy of worshiping God and he presents the counterfeit of worshiping self. You see, the reality is many of us claim to know God and yet many really don't. Has it ever amazed you the verse where Jesus says wide is the gate that leads to destruction and narrow is the path that enters, enters into life? And our country for years has been called a Christian nation. Now we certainly can argue that point. I don't know if that's really fair to say anymore. But it was at one time. And we see churches like this one that are filled with people Sunday after Sunday and we drive past churches where parking lots are filled with cars. We know people are inside. Why is it though that he says narrow is the path? The answer is because there are a lot of people who say, I know God. But at the end of the day, they don't worship him. They worship themselves. We set up our own kings, don't we? We live life the way we want to live. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. We build our own cities, don't we? We work hard and we earn a good living and we have lots of things that we can enjoy and man, we can sure feel like life is absolutely perfect. Everything is great. We don't do it for him. We do it for us, don't we? We set up our own altars of worship too, don't we? Instead of worshiping God, we live our lives for family. We live our lives for work. We live our lives for getting ahead. We live our lives for the golden years of retirement where we can do what? Do whatever it is we want to do. We say we know God, but we live lives for ourselves. And the truth is, we've been doing it a long, long time. Taking a step back, here's what we have to say, okay? When we truly understand the depths of our sin, 
then we can see in the gospel how relentless God's love really is. We are familiar with the message of the gospel. So familiar, we never process it. We just quote it. God desires for all of us to have eternal life. He has made us in His image with the ability to worship Him and walk with Him. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And every man and woman in this room would raise their hands and say, Yes, that speaks of me. And we also know Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, which means the very first time you sinned as a child and you rebelled against your parents, God could have taken you off the face of the earth and been nothing but just and fair in doing so. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Though we have built, set up our own kings, and though we have set up our own altars of worship, and though we have built our own cities, and we've been doing it for a long, long, long time, God relentlessly loves us anyway to the point of coming to the earth. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, lived a sinless life, went to the cross of Calvary, and guess what? Endured the judgment of God in our place. So that after he was buried and resurrected, we by faith in him could have brand new life and now have life with God and put away the counterfeits and worship him who has always been real. And so the question for you and for me today is this forget about what you say. Forget about what certificate that you have signed by your preacher. Forget about how long you've been in the church and how long your family has been plugged into the church. Forget about how many committees you've served on and how many classes you've taught. Forget about how much money you give. God is not mocked. Do you know him? Are you living your life for him, or are you living for you? And if you have never turned from the counterfeit of self and surrendered your life to the all-sufficiency of God through Jesus Christ, the eagle is coming. Don't wait another day. Trust in God's gift of grace through Jesus. And if you're a believer and you have trusted in him genuinely once, but over time have fallen prey to the counterfeits again and find yourself now that work is harder and now that you have family and now that you have responsibilities, you find yourself chasing after the counterfeits of the world. Return to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you this morning, and we just are overwhelmed with your grace. Overwhelmed 
Your love truly is relentless. In fact, more relentless than we've really ever clearly understood. But Sunday after Sunday, verse after verse, chapter after chapter, you continue to show that to us. God, thank you. Thank you for loving us in spite of us. Thank you for providing rescue for us. Thank you for calling us to return. Thank you that you love us too much to allow us to settle for counterfeits. Thank you. Thank you. Father, I pray that from the moment we opened the scriptures, that we have heard you calling us to respond. And for those this morning who are sitting in this room or who are watching online, those who just, for those who've been trying to tune this out and trying to distract themselves, God, don't let them. Don't let us think about what comes next. Only let us think about now. God, for those who you have been knocking on the door of their hearts, God, I pray that you will cause them to open that door today. God, you want to bring revival. You want us to cast away the counterfeits. Help us, God, to do that. We can't build our own lives, and God, we cannot build this church. Only you can do that. Build us, oh God. Strengthen us, oh God. Be glorified in us. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.